0: Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor Mcquivy. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the last normal episode of this season, episode number 10 of season number three. We had a great season. I had so many wonderful guests. This week's episode is with Ryan Summers, who is the fire chief for the North Lake Tahoe Fire Protection District. We had a great conversation about fire season. It is coming up. This is several years in a row now of expected smoke and giant wildfires, and it affects everyone in the Reno, Tahoe, Carson, Sparks area. Not just people who live close to the fires, we deal with it through the entire region. So we had a great conversation about what causes these fires, how to prevent them, the challenges of Hiring firefighters and staffing the work that needs to be done. Tons of stuff that was really interesting about how to deal with the crisis of giant wildfires that don't look like they're going anywhere anytime soon. This is the last normal episode of this season, but next week there is a bonus episode. A couple weeks ago, I had a live taping of a episode at Black Rabbit Mead. So tune in next week for that live episode with Nick Rogers from the Basecamp Music Festival. We talked all about the music festival. Really great conversation there, too, and I hope to be doing additional live recordings, so keep an eye on my social media, where I'll be posting about those, hopefully about one a month or so, at Black Rabbit Mead. This week's episode is brought to you, as always, by DJ Trivia, Sierra Nevada. I host at several different venues. I hope you'll come out and play. It's a lot of fun. I'm at Sierra Tap House on Tuesdays, back at the 395 in the North Valleys on Wednesdays, and at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility on Thursdays. But we have over 20 venues all around town, not just in Reno, also in Lake Tahoe area, out in Sparks. We have new games in Fernley. So check out DJTriviaNevada.com to find all the locations, find one near you, find a host you like, come on and play. It's always free, a lot of fun. We hope to see you soon. This week's episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. I always say that this isn't really a news podcast, it's more of a conversation show, but... We do have great local media that is doing a good job of covering what's going on in town. This is Reno is a great example of that. They're covering all of the important political news, business news, things that you need to know if you live in the Reno area that you might not be hearing reported anywhere else. So follow This is Reno, that's thisisreno.com, or follow them on social media on Facebook or Instagram, and I subscribe to their newsletter, a great way to get those headlines in your email. I am planning to take some of this summer off as a little break from the podcast, but I will be back in September with a whole new season and I need your help to figure out who should be on it. If you have any suggestions for guests, any ideas of who you'd like to hear from, topics you'd like for this show to cover, please let me know. Shoot me an email at Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. One quick note about this episode, it was recorded at the end of May. So there are a couple references to May during the episode. It is because this was recorded just a little while ago. And now this week's guest, Fire Chief Ryan Summers. Chief Ryan Summers of the North Lake Tahoe Fire Department. Welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming
1: on the show today. Oh, you bet. Thank you for the invite.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about fire season. It's coming up this episode. I'm not sure the actual release date, but by the time this airs, there may already be wildfires in the Reno area. So I want to learn a little bit about how those work and what your role as the chief of the fire department is in dealing with fires. It's obviously a major issue affecting the Reno area and a lot of the Sierras. So to start, can you just tell me a little bit about what you do as a fire chief at the North Lake Tahoe Fire Department and how that is different than maybe being a fire chief in a city?
1: Yeah, you bet. So currently North Lake Tahoe Fire Protection District, we cover 16 square miles on the north end of Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side. We do reside within Washoe County and our partners we work with every single day do include Reno Fire Trucking Meadows, Sparks Fire and then as well as the surrounding agencies up here around the lake. A fire chief for a fire district, um, I've never had any experience as a fire chief in a city per se like Reno. With that being said, I report to five elected officials. We are governed by these five elected officials. And North Lake Tahoe Fire Protection District is a district put into place by the voters of Incline and Crystal Bay under NRS 474, what that means is any major change that would come to potentially to the fire district has to go through the voters of Incline and Crystal Bay. And I'm talking consolidation or I'm talking, you know, if we want to uh, build another station and get funding for it, that type of stuff has to go through the voters. That's different than a city because, you know, you're under maybe the city manager per se, the fire chief may report to the city manager. And so they can make those changes without including the voters up here. We get to include the voters, which, which is empowering to them, you know, and, and I enjoy that. And and I do believe they enjoy that because they get to see where their tax dollars are going for sure. They get to have a, a true say in where that goes. Mm-hmm. Additionally, we, everything we do is in-house. So I say that our, we have a mechanic in-house. I don't take it to any rigs that are broken down. I don't take it to the city shop and share it with, you know, the, the utilities, and the water and sewer trucks and so on and so forth. We have our own dedicated staff for every department you can think of within a government organization. So HR, as I mentioned, mechanics, uh, preventions in-house, fire preventions in-house. And then we, we have, we provide the ambulance service for the same 16 square miles. And so our ambulance billing remains in-house. We do everything right here and all those departments work under the fire chief. So we, we, we're organized a little bit differently, but if you ask me, it's it's a better way. But again, I don't have any experience in the city version. Um, I do like how it is set up. Um, I'm passionate about this fire district. I was born and raised here in Incline, and my dad was on the board of this fire district. He's one of those elected officials when I was growing up up here in Incline. So it's very cool to continue on with this district and have the family involvement, and then obviously be truly vested in this in this fire department.
0: Excellent. That's interesting that it is a different kind of structure. Do you think it makes you more nimble to have everything under one roof? Or what are the benefits you think of the structure that you have that you enjoy up there? I do. I think we get
1: things done a little bit faster. Take the mechanic for instance. If we have an engine go down, you know that's 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 our job. We need those fire engines and those ambulances to be running 24/7. If we have to take it to a city shop, we get thrown in line behind all the other agencies that may exist in a city that I mentioned before. You know, we get to change the priority of our vehicles getting repaired and getting fixed. You know, if it's in the middle of summer and a brush truck goes down, one of the engines that we take to to wildland fires, that gets moved to the top of the list. You know, on top of a a chief's truck or something that needs an oil change, that's going (laughs) to get moved to the top of the list. We also get to institute different programs. Basically, just as soon as we can think of them, we could almost institute them right away. We don't have to go through city and I'll call it red tape. You don't have to go through city government red tape to try to get something done. We can institute a program and get it going. Like our fuels program, you know, we wanted to do this. We didn't have to go before anybody else. We just we brought it to the board's attention, got their blessing back in the early 80s, and we started our fuels program. And it's probably one of the most successful fuels programs. And when I say fuels, it's it's the vegetation management and reduction of such around our fire district. And it was implemented in a very short amount of time in my opinion, versus some of these other bigger departments. Mm -hmm.
0: But you said you interact with other agencies as well, too, right? So you have this area that is, you said, 16 square miles? Correct. But these fires, they are very close, and they all impact each other, I'm sure. The other fire departments in the area, other agencies. So can you tell me a little bit about what the communication and interaction works like when you're dealing with things like wildfires that obviously affect multiple jurisdictions? How does that work as far as... The communication and decision making when you're working with a lot of different, you know, different organizations or different agencies or different government entities.
1: Yeah, so I, I can. I'd like to start from the very beginning, and that is when somebody reports a wildland fire. They mm-hmm. pick up that phone, they call nine one one. Two years ago, we switched dispatch centers. One of the main reasons for us switching dispatch centers, we went from Washoe County Sheriff's Office to being dispatched out of Grass Valley, California. But Grass Valley dispatches seventy percent of the basin now. So that communication starts as soon as they pick up that 911. And if it's a wildland fire in our district, our surrounding agencies know about it at the exact same time we know about it. We're all we've we're already gearing up or we got our heads up to what they have going on. And then then if you get into the response side of the incident, we have what we call automatic aid agreements, which means if the IC gets there and says, give me two more engines, and that fire district is out of those engines. They automatically go to the neighboring district and ask them for those two fire engines without any chief approval, without going through the bureaucracy of can you do it, can you not do it. Of course, we have the option to say, listen, we just broke a couple incidents ourselves. I'm sorry we can't film at this time. But nine times out of ten, we are able to send them the resources they request. And then that starts what I call the domino effect. So we've sent two engines. We only staff three a day. We're going to ask for two from the neighboring district at the opposite end of the incident to Mm. to start backfilling. And all of this is done seamlessly, and rightly so, without the fire chief's involvement. This is a battalion chief level job, and they can do it, and they have the authorization to do that. So we're talking, we're communicating from an incident. Before the incidents even start though, the chiefs have monthly meetings. We have Lake Tahoe Regional Fire Chiefs Association, and we meet monthly, which includes Reno Sparks, Truckee Meadows, Carson City, East Fork, you know, Douglas County, we all meet monthly and we try to play out these scenarios before they really happen and any potential issues that could come up. In doing so, we're what we're doing is we do not want to delay that response due to red tape or just, you know, worry about the ability of payment because going to fires costs fire districts and fire departments a lot of money. We've got all of this worked out for the most part, all of this worked out in the forefront so that when the smoke goes in the air, we can help, we can get there, and we can mitigate the issue as soon as possible. So we talk every month. I know the battalion chiefs for the two neighboring districts. So for up here, it'd be North Tahoe fire on the California side and Tahoe Douglas fire on the Nevada side, but down the East shore, if you will. The battalions talk every day. We have email correspondence going back and forth every day of their daily staffing. What's in service? What isn't in service? How many are on duty? What the capabilities are of that day is, for instance, is their boat available? We've, you know, a couple of us over here have boats on the Lake Tahoe, the true fire boats on Lake Tahoe. Is your boat in service case? We get a medical on the lake, you know? So they're already planning for the day through daily emails and phone calls. Mm-hmm. So we're up here, we know we can be isolated at any moment. It's only going to take a closure of a couple highways Three, four highways that we would be isolated up here, and we need to take care of our own. And so we do that. In doing so, it's truly proven that we can, you know, survive or mitigate these incidents up here with the existing resources that we have. Mm-hmm. You expand beyond that, and then you go into what we call mutual aid, and that is just some different different terminologies that, which trigger different things in the agreements, but we're still going to get that help from outside of our adjacent jurisdictions when we need it. Yeah.
0: How long have you been chief of this district and have you seen things change over time? I know wildfires have always been an issue, but it seems in recent years they're, you know, we have a true fire season. It's longer, they're bigger. And I assume that you've seen over the years That shift kind of happened? Has that been an actual shift in the number and intensity of fires? Has it been a shift in the attention that's being paid to them? Kind of in your over your career, how have you seen that role that you hold change or adapt to the changing actual conditions on the
1: ground? So, I've been with the fire district. I started as a volunteer in a seasonal in 1990. I've been with this fire district that long. I left for a short amount of time during my volunteer and seasonal time to become a, a seasonal firefighter at. Cal Fire. Back then, it was CDF. Spent a few seasons down there. Came back here. Got hired in our dispatch center, of all places, and then promoted out of there and held every single position this district has, um, minus paramedic. But I spent time on a paramedic ambulance up to fire chief, and I've been fire chief for North Lake Tower Fire for six years now. It's changed a lot. Wildland fires. You know, when they broke out, we had a chance. We had it. But we still have a chance. So don't get me wrong. But just hear me out for a second. They were they were kept small, but due to environmental issues, due to houses being built in the what I call the wooi or what everybody calls the wooi, but that's the wild land urban interface. That is a house in the middle of the forest. It's a wild land urban interface area. More houses being built in these areas is a challenge for firefighters because so one tactic we could have maybe to keep these fires small and this is going to sound a little, you know, it's going to contradict my, my statement, but we'd go to these fires and to keep this, the fire as small as possible, we may back off a little bit and light another fire. So when the main fire gets to our little small fire that we've started, it has nothing else to burn and it puts itself out. Mm -hmm. We can't do that now today because there's a house around the corner You know, Mm -hmm. and we don't want to, our first priority is life and property. And that's the, so that's the last thing we're going to do is to hinder the property to put these fires out. And then you're talking about people traffic on the same road that we're trying to get down. These people are trying to get out rightly so I'm not faulting them for that, but you have to know that the physical space on the road is minimized now because of vehicles coming out of what we're trying to get into. And that's going to delay our response. So it has changed. It has changed quite a bit. The fuels have changed. We're very aggressive in our fuels management program, but there's parts of Lake Tahoe they are not that progressive. They are they're not as far as long as we are, and it's and I'll be honest, it, it it could be on federal lands where there's a lot more red tape to take one tree out than for us to go take a tree out of of like locally owned land. It's a little bit easier. There's different stipulations for different landowners, and that comes into play too because then that vegetation becomes overgrown, which intensifies the fire. You know, you have a campfire, don't have a campfire in Tall. but you have a campfire and you throw more wood on it, the fire gets bigger, the fire gets hotter. That's exactly what's happening on the hillsides up here or in the wooded areas, if you will. More vegetation means more intensity of fires. Now, weather patterns have changed. We've all seen that. Everybody's going to have their excuse or they're not have an excuse of why that's happening. But it's noted that we were getting warmer and we're getting less precipitation. We're not getting that rain and snow that we once had. We have one good winter up here. And everybody's like, man, that's the worst winter. And to me, growing up here, I'm like, that's almost a normal winter up here. This is what we need. Mm-hmm. So with that, that vegetation's dry. It's very dry. I did a another article and, and podcast And we were talking about the fuels, you know, these big pine trees are out here and they're green and they're tall and they're beautiful, but they are the driest they have ever been since we've been keeping records. They may be green, they may look good, but the moisture content inside that tree is the driest they've ever been since we've been taking record. That is going to intensify any kind of fire activity. Mm -hmm. And when flames get above eight to 10 feet, we can't fight that from the ground. It's too dangerous. That's why we rely on aircraft. Well, now you're talking about, can they see? Can they see through the smoke to utilize these aircraft? What's the wind doing? Always seems like the wind's high when when we need them. And if it's too high, it's too dangerous for them to fly. So it's a domino effect, if you will. It's compounding and it's it's not getting any better unless you can go in and remove the fuel And start at the base and remove that fuel from the very get-go, you have a better chance of suppressing these, what are now becoming mega fires. Look at New Mexico. It's just, for May, that's astounding, the fire behavior going on right now in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's sad and astounding.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the prescribed burns, this kind of burning up the fuel in smaller controlled fires before we get to the big mega fires. And I understand that is a really good practice that we should probably be doing more of. There is a real strategy in preventing fires by doing this on the front end, right? So instead of being reactive to fires, you're being proactive about preventing them. You mentioned that where we build creates a conflict for that. It makes it harder to do the prescribed burns. Are there other things that are limiting your ability to, you know, do the work? There's a few elements
1: to that. Yeah, prescribed burn is definitely one tool that we use for reducing the fuels to keep that fire intensity lower. And there's some steps to take there to properly do it and to make sure that we do not have an escape control burn because I do not want that ever to happen. Mm. Does that happen? Not to the scale that you see on the news. You know, we've lost maybe a quarter of an acre, and that's a quarter of an acre too much to me, but we were able to suppress it and bring it back and bring it back into what we call prescription. So there's always that risk, and you've got to really pay attention to the weather and humidity and all the elements of weather so that that doesn't happen. But the issue today with conducting fuels work in general, we can cut the vegetation and pile it up and burn it the next season. We can chip those piles or we can do what we call a broadcast or prescribed burn. Funding at the beginning was an issue. How are we going to pay these folks? Our budget is not large enough to not only pay our full-time folks or pay our folks to staff engines and ambulances and and be here 24/7 it's additional funding to hire additional personnel to go out and do this fuels work we can't send an engine out to do the fuels work and send them halfway up the hill then they get a call they have to be more ready than than that mm-hmm. so we have to f- look for an entire new workforce to do this fuels work so funding was an issue that has come a long way since I've been in management in the fire service Um, There's lots of more federal funds that have come available. Um, Funding, we're we're looking really good. Now it's the workforce. We are having a very hard time finding people to do the work. There's multiple reasons for this. What we're able to pay is a factor. We try to stay right in the middle or a little bit more, and and then we offer some other incentives to come to work for North Lake Fire to work on the fuels crew. But it's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's hard work. We're up here, we're doing this fuels work at 6, 7, 8,000 feet. And that takes a lot out of you. And it, and if you're not accustomed to that elevation, it's very hard to do that work. And then to be honest with you, there's easier jobs out there for the same amount of money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you're young, it's a lot easier to take that easy job and not work so hard. So the workforce has been an issue for us. And that's that's our biggest hurdle right now is the workforce. Um equipment we're able to obtain because of the federal funding. And there's plenty of work to do, but it's the workforce. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think that we can do to recruit more firefighters? A part of it that if people want to be a firefighter, there are other firefighting jobs that are easier, lower stress, that kind of thing, that people might not want to do the more challenging version of the job. Or is it there's competition with other fire departments is it Is it training? I know that's also an issue is you know you can't just grab anyone and make them a firefighter. There's training and that type of work that goes into it, which also has expense and timelines and those kind of things. so what are the the barriers you think to to the staffing
1: housing hmm. um within tahoe they everybody's got to commute. there's no affordable housing up here. We bring on sixty seasonals. We don't have the ability to house sixty seasonals. From a management standpoint, parking those additional cars up here, there's no place to park these additional cars. We've had to enter into agreements with like Incline General Improvement District for the ski area because the ski area is closed. So they're allowing us to utilize their parking lot for employees that are commuting. Yeah, the housing's an issue. You hit the nail on the head too. There's other departments that are hiring these positions. So everybody wants that wants to be a firefighter, they want to help people. They want to ride the big red fire engine and they want to drive the ambulance and help those people. If you think about it, it's very hard to get any kind of reward out of going out and doing what I call stick stacking or extreme gardening Mm -hmm. because there's not instant satisfaction to it. It's a process over a year or two before you see any improvement to the forest and what you're doing to help the vegetation along, if you will, and and improve the existing vegetation's health. That doesn't happen overnight, but you go out and put a fire out at a house, you know, and you got it out, and that's the best feeling ever. That's why I got into it, and mm-hmm. it's that instant gratification. Fuels work, there's not that instant gratification. As an incentive, You know, one of them is, is that our fuels crews, if they are up to date with their projects, we allow them to go to these wildland fires to get that instant satisfaction. They get to go out and put that fire out, and mm-hmm. that's what they want. That's what they've all signed up to do. That's what you love about the job. If they truly want to be involved with the fire service, and I'm going to say – want that instant gratification everybody's got to put in the steps though to get there right nothing's easy you got to work towards it and we've recognized that and now we've changed our hiring policy that if you are on the crew you'll get preferential points or maybe on certain certain hiring process to establish a list we may only take and you may only be eligible to to test for a full-time firefighter's position if you work on the crew So that's part of that rewarding process that, oh, come to work, work on the crew for a couple of seasons with the intent to get hired full-time because our our fuels crews are seasonal and get full-time status with the same fire department that you started out with. And you get to stay here throughout your career. And that's, that's very rewarding to a lot of the people that we have hired off of the crew. They think that that's the best thing ever. And then if you decide you want to step up your medical training and the medical side of your profession and you want to become a paramedic, we are entertaining and we're doing it right now. We are paying for that employee to go through paramedic school. So that's an expense that employee doesn't have to take on. We are paying for that in return for X amount of years of service. We don't want you to just get your paramedic and then go somewhere else. We, you need to pay off that debt, if you will, over a certain amount of years, staying employed with us. Mm Mm-hmm. And does that time working on the
0: fuel crew and doing, you know, stack and sticks, extreme gardening, Mm -hmm. that also probably, I imagine, helps them have a better understanding of how these fires work and what goes into preventing them and fighting them when the time comes, that they're actually at the front lines of an existing fire, right? Is that an important part of the process, not just for getting the fuel cleared, but also for those people who are working in the department to have more practical experience working with the fuel and working in the field to better understand how to deal with the fires when they are there.
1: Yes, absolutely. You, you get to learn a lot about that. Again, it's another compounding. If I can keep using that term, it's another area that you get to see from the foundation up, if you will, of what's out there. And then if, it, if you have to go revisit the same area due to a wildland fire, you know exactly what the terrain is like. You've been there in the afternoon at four o'clock. You know which way the wind's going to be coming from. You know what to prepare for. You know how to potentially read the fire and where it's going to go so you can make your objectives and, and do your strategies and objectives to suppress that fire based off of your previous knowledge of the area of the fuel types, the topography, the weather, and, and so on. So yeah, that absolutely helps. And on the structure side, we don't see this anymore, but when I started in the, in the industry, the firefighters that work construction part-time on their days off, we could go to, into a structure fire and they could tell you exactly what's going to happen with that fire based off the construction type of that building. And it was phenomenal. It was the best knowledge ever. And it's, it's just more to the professionalism and more to the knowledge of what it takes nowadays to suppress any type of a fire, whether it be wildland or structure, it's your past experience in the area of expertise or, or what you like to do that helps you out when it's a true emergency incident. Hey there, listeners. I hope you are
0: enjoying this week's episode. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a little bit about Patreon. It is a way for creators like myself to make their shows or projects financially sustainable through contributions from their audience. If you're enjoying this episode, you think it's worth maybe throwing a buck in the tip jar if I were to hold out a cup? You can do that at patreon.com slash There's several different levels to sign up for from as low as three bucks a month. That's about a dollar an episode. Higher tiers include things like bonuses, some merchandise, shout outs on the podcast. So check out patreon.com slash Renoites. I hope you will contribute to make the show financially sustainable so I can keep on making episodes. Shout out to some of my patrons. Vicky from DJ Trivia. Thank you so much for financially supporting the show. Emily from Growing Up Reno Tahoe. Helping to share information about what's going on for families in Reno, you can find her growing up Reno Tahoe on Instagram, and Mike from Downtown Makeover, one of my favorite local blogs, all about developments that are in Reno, especially in the downtown area. So much going on, and Mike does a great job of keeping on top of it. Please check out Patreon if you want to contribute. Even just a couple bucks a month makes a huge difference. It's Patreon.com/Renoites. And now, back to the episode. You mentioned that people are drawn to firefighting because they want to help people, which makes a lot of sense to me, but it's also a super difficult, very stressful job, both physically and also psychologically, I'm sure, just because there's a lot of life and death involved. How does the fire department, your department or fire departments in general, how do you deal with burnout or the stresses of the job? Because it's, I think, a uniquely intense and stressful job. How do you deal with that and do you see that as being one of the big challenges of the
1: staffing is the psychological effects? We're pretty fortunate up here. Um, We're busy, but we're not that busy. I think the burnout issue is probably minimal for us up here because we have such aggressive prevention and a fuels management program that we don't have that many fires, thankfully. But the psychological part really comes into play, yes, when you're dealing with other humans and friends and family, if you see them hurt or you it's such a small town, we all know each other. And then you have to go and actually truly help them. Psychologically, that can hurt big time. Most, I think all the fire departments, all government agencies have programs set up to help anybody that needs, they feel, if they feel they need that help. The problem is, is firefighters are not going to admit they need help. So what you have to do is bring the help to them before they ask. And we've got programs set up just for that. So for instance, if we run a a pretty significant incident, we'll give it a day or two, and then we're gonna put together a critical stress debrief, if you will. And that's where we're gonna all get together and we're all gonna talk about what happened and try to get these folks to talk about what they're thinking of that incident and then to tell them that it's okay that they're thinking that way and here we're here to help you and let's handle the situation or whatever bothered you. Let's help you handle that and let it not take a toll on your mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. What about volunteers and volunteer fire departments? Because I know that is sometimes a factor, but not necessarily something that you want to lean on or rely on. I don't know how often they're used. Is volunteer firefighting part of the process or the solution for dealing with fires in your
1: department or in general? So we used to have volunteers up here. I started out as a volunteer up here 30 years ago. The federal mandates that have come down for firefighters to be qualified or certified as such is so intense that it's a full-time job of being a firefighter to stay qualified. The flip side to that is, is if you are not qualified, and something happens in this litigation-happy society that we have right now, it's not going to fare very well for the fire district or the employee or the volunteer.
0: Hmm.
1: We had to make a very tough decision back then. Thank gosh I wasn't the chief. But we had to make a very tough decision to basically dissolve the volunteer program because they're full-time folks working at another job They would come to the fire station one night a week for training, two to three hours. You cannot get through those federal mandates in two to three hours a week and stay current to be a firefighter on a true incident. Now, there's other areas to volunteer. You know, there's CERT programs, the Community Emergency Response Teams through Washoe County Sheriff's Office that are going to come and volunteer, and they're going to provide the logistical side of an incident. That is huge. So you're still helping. That is huge. They're going to help do traffic control. They're going to remain outside of the affected area and help us out where we still need that help. They're going to bring us Gatorades. You know, they're going to bring us water. We need that type of stuff because we're so busy mitigating the issue that that's what it's come to now, at least on the West Coast, from what I can understand. There's some volunteers in California. Don't get me wrong. There's some departments that do it and have very successful at it. And I probably need to sit down one day and figure out how they're doing that. But- In our demographics up here at the lake, it's too hard to keep these people certified to keep all of us safe, to keep them safe, and then to keep us out of the court system.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there a fire training school? I think at TMCC, they have a fire program, if I understand correctly. What does that process look like as far as getting people trained through programs and things outside of your own department to get people ready to be a firefighter in that way?
1: Yeah, so TMCC does have a fire academy. Um, They've also got uh, college classes to get certain certifications out of those college classes. If you're brand new and you want to become a firefighter, I would definitely look at a fire academy. That's going to get you the required certifications just to get you to be able to apply for firefighters' positions. If the fire department is advertising for firefighters and you don't need those certs, but you have them, you're gonna be much more appealing to the hiring process of that department compared to the folks that don't have it because that is less training right off the bat that they have to give the potentially new employee and it makes them more turnkey to get them out there and get into the workforce and start getting the job done. So academies are great. When we hire you brand new as a firefighter and just because you think you went through the TMCC, you're done with academies, you're not. You're gonna go through our academy Because in a nutshell, in layman's terms, what's behind the door in the cabinet of the fire engine is probably not the same that's behind the door of the fire engine that they used in the academy. We have different policies. We have different equipment. We have different style nozzles. We have different fans. Our brush engines, you know, the hose is in a different spot. They pump differently. There's all kinds of different configurations you can have out there. But when you go to work for a department, you need to adhere to their equipment and their policies. And that's what that academy is about. So you're going to go through an academy when you get hired with us full time. Gotcha. Seasonals go through about 60 hours of training to learn our policies and to learn the wildland aspect of firefighting and how to stay safe. And that required training as well.
0: Mm -hmm. For folks like me who are in Reno, not actually at risk of a wildfire destroying my home, I get the effect of the fires from the smoke. And I feel like we've had really intense smoke season the last few years, which has really raised awareness for people around these wildfires. They've always existed. you, you know, They're getting more intense. And the way that affects people here in the city is that it affects our quality of life. There are days when we can't go outside. There's days that the schools are closed. Have you noticed in recent years with the smoke being such a visible and noticeable tangible effect of these fires that that's raised a lot of awareness? And have you gotten communication from the public more about these fires
1: because the impact feels a little more widespread than it used to be? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The smoke is a huge, huge indicator of how large these fires are getting nowadays and becoming these, what we call mega fires or campaign fires, more fire results in more smoke. And that you're right. That smoke absolutely Intensifies everybody's life, not only the firefighters on the ground, but everybody's life because, yeah, you can't go outside. And so, with that being said, it's no longer just, you know, we don't want the fire in our backyard because of the fire, but we don't want the fire across the lake. We don't want the fire, you know, up to 100 miles away because of the smoke impact. So, the sphere of influence is growing because of that smoke impact. Everybody has questions and wants answers of how do we suppress these fires now so that we aren't impacted in, by them one way or another? So the smoke is not helping anybody. It does put a you know a damper on your day, if you will, and you can't go outside. Um, but it sure has brought a lot of awareness to a lot of folks. And now they want to really start thinking about fire. I'm getting a lot of questions right now, like how are we going to evacuate Incline and Crystal Bay if, if we ever need to? And we learned a lot during the Caldor fire When South Lake Tahoe decided to pull the pin and evacuate the entire city at once, it worked. Don't get me wrong, but it was six hours in the making. And they're lucky they had the six hours to do that. Mm -hmm. The way that some of these fires are traveling, we won't have that six hours. So we need folks to listen to the first responders, listen to the government agencies. And if we only want a part of the town to go, please, only that part of town has the priority to leave first. Mm-hmm. We've got to keep the highways open enough to get fire engines in and get the people out. But if everybody leaves at once, just like the campfire did when they tried to get out of Paradise, it clogged up the road. And that's what we've got to avoid. So we are actually revamping our evacuation plan as as I speak about this right now to hopefully get it more user friendly. And I hope we don't ever have to use it, but if we have to use it, let's get a better plan in place and do it more efficiently than that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the communication aspect of when these fires happen, everything happens really quickly and there's a lot of moving parts. And I assume a big part of what the fire departments need to do is communicate to the people, to the populace, where to evacuate, when to evacuate, if to evacuate, what paths to use, what roads are closed, because obviously these fires sometimes will close roads. I hadn't really thought about that as a big part of the job. Is that one of the big challenges, not just fighting the fire, but managing the communication and information
1: flows? Yeah, it absolutely is part of it. Social media has its place, but it can also hinder us because there's going to be some people out there that are doing the old armchair quarterbacking of what we need to be doing. And then they're going to post that and then people are going to listen to it. And it's going to do, when they don't know the whole story, they don't have the whole picture and it's going to hinder our process. It's going to slow our response time down. So communication is vital, but it's communication from a legitimate source. It's communication from those agencies, those government agencies that have boots on the ground and know exactly what's going on. It's not going to be your neighbor saying, this is what we need to do when the neighbor's you know five miles away from the fire. That's not realistic for us when it comes to what communication needs to be out there and how we need to get it out there.
0: You mentioned people building in these—you call the wui the what is it? Wildfire, wildland,
1: urban interface.
0: Yeah, the wildland urban interface. So we have been building more and more into areas that are more likely to burn. The trees are drier and more likely to burn. And I know a lot of the conversation in recent years has been about defensible space, like building, if you're going to build in a place where there may be potential fires, making sure that those fires are not going to be right up on your house or building houses that are more resistant to fires. I can't remember the details. I skimmed an article years ago about one of the biggest problems is just how we build the houses and what we build them out of. And if we did a little better as we're building into these areas, it might help us prevent houses burning down. Is that a big part of the solution? Not just not just where we build, but how we build to prevent these fires from getting out of control or allowing for more prescribed burns with lower risk. What's the building side, basically, of the prevention? Is it just don't build there, or are there things we can do that strike a good balance?
1: You know, um, we we all live in a country where, where we can pretty much, we have, we have a lot of freedom, right? So to tell people not to build in the WUI does not sit well with me. They own the land. They want to do it. Let's let them do it. But let's build these structures to resist fire, and let's build them safely. So with that being said, North Lake Tahoe Fire Protection District has adopted a list of codes and ordinances of how you need to build that house in the wildland urban interface. It's amazing how many people don't want to follow those rules. So for instance, if your house is over a certain amount of floors, a certain square footage... And we'll go out and test the fire hydrant out in front of your house. If it's not flowing as much water as we would like, we are going to require you to put fire sprinklers in your house. That's a huge expense. That's a lot of money, but that's what we're finding is going to take. If it's a structure fire to suppress the fire and keep it within one or two rooms of your house and not let it spread to the wildland and affect your neighbors and, Mm -hmm. and the vegetation. So we do that. We have a certain kind of siding and roofing material that we require. You can't put a wood shake roof on your house anymore. Those things catch embers and take off, you know, like a cotton ball. You Mm -hmm. can't do that. I guess I'm saying it's okay to build, but let's build it to the current codes. And if this is your idea and this is what you want to do, just know there may be some additional expenses there that you weren't thinking of but we're making all we're doing is trying to make your property safe and your property defendable in a wildland fire. Defensible space is huge. It's proven time and time again to save houses. Look it up and look at any images that you can find on the internet, defensible space where it was conducted and where it wasn't. The house is more than likely has a better chance and probably is standing if they conducted their defensible space. Now defensible space though, there's different requirements for different areas. We aren't going to have the same requirement as a house that's in the desert for defensible space. Ours are going to be a little bit more aggressive, especially if you're on a slope. The downhill side of your house, you're going to have to take more vegetation away from the downhill side of the house than you are the uphill side of the house, if you will. Fire loves to travel uphill with some really large flame lengths. If that vegetation is taken out farther down slope from the house less likely the fire would reach the house or at least gives us a chance to get in there on the down sloping part of your house and put the fire out before it reaches your house. Hmm. So wherever you want to build it, build it to the current fire code and conduct your defensible space. And it may be more expensive, but you need to realize it's for your safety mm-hmm. and the conservation of your property.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What starts fires? I always think of defensible spaces to protect your house from a fire that has already begun. But you mentioned like a house fire could start a wildfire. And there are a lot of different things that start these fires. Are there things that can be done to stop these fires from getting started in the first place? Or is that just kind of you have to deal with them as they come up?
1: Well, the natural occurring fire, fires from lightning. We're not going to stop those. Right. They're going to start. So our best avenue there is get in and put it out. Human-caused fires, we're not going to stop those either. I wish we could, but we're not going to. In all reality, that's pretty much your only two ignition sources for fires. And on the human side, again, when we go into these fire restrictions, and we will more than likely go into fire restrictions later on this year if, if the weather pattern keeps up and it's, you know, it's, it's May and we're hitting the 80s already, that you can't have any fire outdoors with solid fuels no log on the campfire in the backyard, no campfire at all, no charcoal barbecues, and so on and so forth. And again, people get very upset about that, but they don't understand the ramifications that come with starting a fire, but how easily a a fire starts from using such devices or using such fuel. If we could ask everybody out there to be extra safe and abide by the the current restrictions... You know, I have no doubt that limits our fires or lowers the numbers of our potential fires. And that's all, that's basically all we can do again without getting into a huge feud with people and potentially, rightly so, them getting very upset or I don't know if, you can, if I can say, you know, taking away their rights, but we're trying not to do that. But we also have to understand that there's ramifications for not doing anything either, for everybody.
0: What can people do to help. If there's a wildfire, I think you probably need people to like you said, water, Gatorade, supplies, like things that'll make your life easier. But then there are also people who probably get in the way and try to help in ways that are not helpful. So what are the the helpful ways for a typical person? Let's say there's a a fire that's not directly impacting us. You know, it's super smoky because there's a big fire and here in Reno, we want to do something to help and we don't know what. What do you want people to to do and what do you want people to not do
1: in those situations? So, people need to stay away. Don't come down there and be a looky loo and clog up the roads so you can take a picture. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to see the action. They want to be in the middle of the action. You're hindering our process. Please do not do that. You want to help, you want to support. I mentioned Waters and Gatorades, but they have to come from an agency that is on contract with us or that we, you know, um, basically trust that, that it's coming from a good source. So we don't take water and Gatorade donations at fires or at the incident command post. A lot of people want to do that. We just can't do that. And there's multiple, multiple reasons for that. The best thing you can do is stay away from the incident, let it wind down. Then after it's, you know, the, the fire is out, go to your local fire department and ask them what to do. Maybe they have a list of people that have been affected and these people that want to help, help them in the aftermath. Let the government agency put you in touch with somebody that's been affected and needs that help. Help them in the aftermath. During the incident, stay away. Help in the aftermath. What can you do to make their life brighter after going through a hellacious activity? So that's what I would say is is really concentrate on the aftermath because when the smoke's out of the air, everybody forgets about it, mm-hmm. except those people that were affected by it. And then they have no support because everybody left, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Are we going
0: to see fires ever get less intense? Will a lot of this fuel eventually be burned up? Uh, I know that as we burn more of these fires, there's you know, less trees to keep the environment cooler, those kind of things. Like there seems to be a ever-worsening cycle. But there's only so much fuel. There's definitely things that can be done hopefully to mitigate some of the effect of these fires. Where do you see things going in the future with these fires if they continue to go the way that they
1: are? Yeah, that's uh, one of those crystal ball questions. (laughs) It's very, very hard to answer. And I I keep telling myself if I could answer these questions and I'd invest my money in the stock market and be just fine. And I can't do that either. So (laughs) I don't see the fires becoming less intense. There is so many rules out there now and issues out there now of why we can't do fuels work in certain areas. Some are good rules in my opinion, some are bad rules in my opinion. So when we can't conduct that fuels work, that is probably the, the only immediate solution we have to lower the intensity of these fires. There's other long-term solutions out there but we need the buy-in from the folks for that to be pulled off. You know, we really do need that buy-in or else those programs aren't going to get off the ground or, or go anywhere. I don't think we have an immediate scenario or solution to lower these fire intensities right now. You mentioned that all the fuel is going to burn up. I truly, truly hope not. You know, going out on your hike, or on your drive and going through these green, mature areas. It's beautiful, and I don't ever want to lose that. It would be significant, significant fire activity if we lost a majority of the fuel that could burn out there. But we can sure manage that fuel better than we have in the past, definitely, so that we can keep these green belts around. But I just don't see the fire intensity lowering until we start changing our ways. And I'd say we, I'm talking federal landowners. I'm talking state landowners and I'm talking local landowners. I have local landowners that won't touch their property. They don't want to do any defensible space. Hmm. Then we have to go in and force it. That's not a fun process. We have the federal landowners who are managing so much land and don't have the staff to do it. You know, they have hundreds of thousands of millions of acres But they don't have the staff hours to go out and truly effectively manage that. And in an area they decide to go ahead and do it, they have so much red tape to get through before they can even put a shovel in the dirt to start the work that it's just mind-boggling to me how they even get any projects done. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then state lands, Nevada state lands, they're really progressive. They're one of our better partners. They see it. They go in. They do their fuels work. And they do what they need to do. And when they're done, their properties look great. We always, used, we joke about it. It was like, man, this looks like a park now. This is what we need. And a lot of the local landowners, local government landowners, Inclining General Improvement District, they're phenomenal. They have about 700 acres here in Inclining Crystal Bay. We do all their fields work for them. They're a great partner. We're able to go in. And, and I'm talking the land... That's at the bottom, starts at the bottom of the drainage and goes three quarters up of the way of the slope as Avgid lands. Well, we're conducting that defensible space, if you will, below that house that's built on, this, on the ridge. But it's your responsibility to take it from your property line to your foundation, right? Mm-hmm. So when you don't do that, all of our work below, it's not going to do you any good. So we need to all do our work and we need to all be good partners and we need to do this as a unified front. And that's not happening right now, and it needs to. How do you think that that can change?
0: Is it just a? I mean, it sounds like this is less of the the work of doing the fuel work, and more of the getting buy-in from people that have to make decisions about how it's done. If you you know, if you had a magic wand, like what are the the regulations you would change, or what are the things that you would change to kind of kickstart this interest or this ability to do the fuel work that obviously is such a key component.
1: So this is the political side of my job, right? (laughs) Yeah. This is what I really get paid the big bucks for. Let's lessen the red tape. Let's allow, again, let's allow agencies and homeowners that want to do work, allow them to do that work. So I'll I'll give you an example. North Lake Tahoe Fire um, has approached the Forest Service. They have piles on their land that have been there for years. They know about them. I call them all the time, remind them that they're there. Oh, we're trying to get somebody out there. We're trying to get somebody out there. And they are. I'm I'm not doubting that part of it. But I'm like, well, how about you let us go burn them? Oh, now, wait a minute. You can't just go and burn them because you have to go through this entire contract process. It's in place for a reason. Don't get me wrong. But why does it have to take a year to get through a contract process? Hmm. What is wrong with that? I'm not saying let's go burn these piles to take away work from a local contractor that's qualified to do the same thing. Let the local contractor go do it. I don't want to do it to make money. He or she needs to make that money to survive. Let them do it. But don't make the red tape so involved that you spend more money on the red tape than the project's even going to bring you.
0: Hmm.
1: We need to really analyze that and pull back some of these steps in the process and have a common sense approach to it. It's almost like the common sense is gone. It really is. But it's common sense to me. So you can get mad at me if you want. It's common sense to me, but it's not going to be common sense to like an environmentalist who has a very, who is very involved and knows some of the ramifications of doing this work, what it could do there too. But working in the fire service and playing devil's advocate, if we can't do that work, we all lose the environmentalists lose because there's nothing left. The fire departments and all of us lose because our property could potentially be gone. We got to come to some better common ground Mm -hmm. and some better partnerships. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the
0: prevention rather than, again, there's like proactive versus reactive seems like a huge, huge focus of dealing with fires in general is when you are saving the money or the time or being overly cautious at the front end it ends up costing you so much more in terms I'm guessing costing you so much more in terms of actual loss and actual damage to people's lives after the fact if you didn't do that work on the front end. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right.
0: So it, it just like as a cost saving measure if part of the if part of the concern is cost and you know again you mentioned red tape and kind of like the bureaucratic side there's a financial and real-life
1: cost to all of those things at the end of the day. There is, but any progressive agency should definitely understand the financial impact to prevention needs to be higher than, has a higher priority than the financial impact of dealing with the aftermath. Mm. You know, the Forest Service or government agencies or some agencies, and I don't mean to be picking on just the Forest Service, BLM's got their issues too that, And North Tahoe Fire has our issues too. So it's, I'm not trying to pick on any one agency, but they'll pay millions and millions and millions of dollars to suppress a fire, but they'll only pay a hundred thousand dollars to prevent the fire. To me, that doesn't make sense. Let's flip that around. Let's flip that around. And then the other win on that is the, the property is conserved. The property is there after we do the fuels work, after we do this preventative work, it's still there. Mm -hmm. And they're out the money the other side of the the suppression side of it is they're out the money and the property's not there nobody wins let's at least try to win somewhere let's try to at least bring the happiness if you will to one side of it you know you won't might not be happy financially but your property's still there and mm-hmm. you know the the land is still virtually not devastated or moonscaped by a fire
0: yeah What else do you want people to know about fires or your job or the fire season in general that people might not know or, uh, you know, might not understand
1: about the way that these fires work and what we can do about them? Um, You are not exempt from starting a fire. So you're going to go out for the day and you're like, I would never start. I I won't start a fire. That's not going to happen to me. It can happen to any one of us. You're not exempt. You're not any better than anyone else when it comes to potentially starting a fire. So listen, know your surroundings, look for the restrictions, adhere to the restrictions, and understand that we're doing this to protect future life and property around us. Just be careful. Be careful. Don't go out and be careless because it's going to come back to haunt you. It's it's one of those karma things, in my opinion, you know? If you go out and you're careful, it's probably going to be just fine and you're going to have a great day. If you're careless, it's not going to be a great day. It's not. And the investigation side of fires is phenomenal. We have a very good chance of finding out what started the fire and who started the fire. So just be careful.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I know that fire season, as we call it now, is a real thing in reno and it affects everyone's lives here even though you're up in north lake tahoe i know the impacts of everything that you are doing and the organizations and the other fire departments that you work with those directly affect everybody here in reno so it's very much a regional issue not just specifically to to your city or your area this affects reno sparks cars and this and you know and not just here either the entire West Coast. Fires are a huge issue. Absolutely. So I appreciate you taking the time to come and tell me a little bit about what you do and what happens behind the scenes and what we can do. I think talking about solutions is really important. So it was good to learn about some of the, the challenges that you face or the barriers to doing the fuel work that's so essential. And hopefully listeners can be a little more looped in on what goes into preventing these fires rather than just fighting them after the fact.
1: Yep, you bet. Anytime. Thank you. Listeners,
0: thank you again for checking out this week's episode of Renoites, and thank you for tuning in all season. It's been really great to have all of these awesome guests. I really enjoy doing this show and learning about all different kinds of people that are doing important things in town. So thank you to all of my guests from this season and the previous seasons. Over 50 episodes so far, and I've enjoyed every single one of them. As I said, next week I have a special bonus live episode, so please check that out. And again, let me know who you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future when I come back with new episodes in September. You can reach me anytime at Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Thank you again so much for your support. See you next week.